Chapter 5 of The Golden Book of Dutch Navigators by Hendrik Willem van Loon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett. Chapter 5 The Second Voyage to India Success. There was now a great boom in the Indian trade. Whosoever could beg, borrow, or steal a few thousand guilders, whoever possessed an old scow which could perhaps be made to float, whoever was related to a man who had a cousin who had some influence on the exchange, suddenly became an Indian trader, equipped a ship, hired sailors, had mysterious conferences with nautical gentlemen who talked about their great experience in foreign waters, and then waited for the early days of spring to bid Godspeed to his little expedition. Every city must have its own Indian fleet. Companies were formed, stockholders quarrelled about the apportionment of the necessary capital, and at once they split up into other, smaller companies. There was an old Indian trading company. The next day there was a rival called the New Indian Trading Company, there was an Indian company which was backed by the province of Zealand. There was a private enterprise of the city of Rotterdam. To be honest, there were too many companies for the small size of the country. Before another dozen years had passed, they were all amalgamated into one strong commercial body, the great Dutch East India Company. But during the first years, hundreds of ships stampeded to the promised land of Java and Bali and the Moluccas, and for one fleet of small vessels which came home with a profit, there were a dozen which either were shipwrecked on the way, or which had ruined their shareholders before they had passed the equator. Amsterdam, as always, was the leader in this activity. It was not only a question of capital. There had to be men of vision, merchants who were willing to do things on a large scale before such a venture could return any profit. And while the ships of the Zealand Company were hurried to sea, and left long before the others, and incidentally came back a few years later, Amsterdam quietly collected 800,000 guilders and advertised for competent officers and willing men for a large expedition. This time, it was decided, everything was to be done with scientific precision, and nothing must be left to chance. The commander-in-chief of the 560 men who were to take part in the expedition was Jakob van Neck, a man of good birth, excellent training, and well known in the politics of his own city. His most important advisor was Jakob van Heemskerk, fresh from his adventures in the Arctic Sea and ready for new ones in the Indian Ocean. Several of the officers who had been to Bantam with Houtman were engaged for this second voyage. Among them, our friend van der Deuce, out of whose diary we copied the adventures of the first voyage to the Indies. Even the native element was not lacking. You will remember that the Hollanders had taken several hostages in Madagascar when they visited the east coast of that island in the year 1595. Two of these had been tamed and had been taken to Holland. 
After a year in Amsterdam, they were quite willing to exchange the uncomfortable gloominess of the Dutch climate for a return to their native sunny shores. Also, there was a Mohammedan boy by the name of Abdul, whom curiosity had driven from Bali to Holland on board the ship of Houtman. The fleet of eight vessels left the roads of Texel on the 1st of May of the year 1598, and with a favourable wind, reached the Cape Verde Islands three weeks later. There, a general council of the different captains was asked to decide upon the further course. For with each expedition, the knowledge of what ought to be done and what ought to be omitted increased, and the experiences of Houtman on the coast of Africa, where his entire crew had been disabled through scurvy, must not be repeated. The fleet must either follow the coast of Africa to get fresh food and water whenever necessary, or the ships must risk a more western course, which would take them a far distance away from land, but would bring them into currents which would carry them to the Indies in a shorter while. They decided to take the western course. It was a very tedious voyage except for the flying fishes which sometimes accompanied the ship. Luck was with the expedition, and on the 9th of July the ships passed the equator. The little island of Trinidad off the coast of Brazil was soon reached, and an inquisitive trip in an open boat to explore this huge rock almost ended in disaster. But such small affairs as a night spent in an open boat in a stormy ocean were all in the day's work, and gave the sailors something to talk about. Within a remarkably short time, the lonely island of Tristan de Cunha was passed, and from there the current and the western winds carried the ships to the Cape of Good Hope. But near this stormy promontory, a small hurricane suddenly fell upon the fleet, and after a night of very heavy squalls, one of the eight ships had disappeared. It was never seen again. A few days later, this time through carelessness and observing signals, four other ships were separated from their admiral. Several days were spent in coursing about in the attempt to find them. The sea, however, is very wide and ships very small, and Van Neck, with two big and one small vessel, at last decided to continue the voyage alone. He was in a hurry. There were many rivals to his great undertaking, and when he actually met a Dutch ship sent out by the province of Zeeland, he insisted that there must be no delay of any sort. The Zeeland ship, however, was not a dangerous competitor. Nine members of its crew of 75 had died. Among the others, there was so much scurvy that only seven men were able to handle the helm. Only two could climb aloft. The Amsterdam ships ought to have helped their fellow countrymen, but in the Indian spice trade it was a question of first come, first served. Therefore, they piously commended their Zealand brethren to the care of the good Lord and hastened on. A short stay in Madagascar was necessary because the water in the tanks was of such abominable taste and smelled so badly that it must be replenished. The ships sailed to the east coast of the island, stopped at Santa Maria, 
well known from the visit of Houtman's ships three years before, and then made a short trip in search of fresh fruit to the Bay of Antongil, on the island of Santa Maria, they had found a happy population, well governed by an old king, and spending their days in hunting wild animals on land or catching whales at sea. But in the Bay of Antongil, things had greatly changed since Houtman had left a year before. There had been a war with some of the tribes from the interior of the island. The villagers along the coast had been burned, and all the cattle had been killed. Men and women were dying of starvation. Right in the midst of the lovely tropical scenery, there lay the decaying corpses of the natives, a prey to vultures and jackals. The expedition of Van Neck, however, had been sent out to buy spices in India and not to reform the heathen inhabitants of African islands. The water tanks were hastily filled, and on the 16th of September, the island was left to its own fate. For two months, the ships sailed eastward. There were a few sick men on board, but nobody died, which was considered a magnificent record in those days for so long a voyage. On November the 19th, the high mountains of the coast of Sumatra appeared upon the horizon. From there, Van Neck steered southward, and near the Sunder Islands, he at last reached the dangerous domains of the Portuguese. The cannon were inspected, the mechanism of the guns was well oiled, and everything was made ready for a possible fight. Before the coast of Java was reached, one of the islands of the Sunder archipelago was visited. Could the natives tell them anything about the Portuguese and their intentions? The natives could not do this, but in return asked the men whether they perhaps knew anything about a foreign expedition which had been in those parts a few years before. That expedition, it appeared, had left a very bad reputation behind, on account of its cruelty and insolence. Van Neck decided not to remain in this region where his predecessor had made himself too thoroughly unpopular and sailed direct for Bantam. He would take his risks. On November the 26th, while the sun was setting, the three ships dropped anchor in that harbour. They spent an uncomfortable night, for nobody knew what sort of reception would await them on the next day. Hartman had been in great difficulty with both the Sultan and the Portuguese. Very likely, the ships, flying the Dutch flag, would be attacked in the morning. But when morning came, the ubiquitous Chinaman, who in the Far Indies serves foreign potentates as money changer, merchant, diplomatic agent, and handyman in general, came rowing out to Van Nick's ship. He told the Admiral that the Sultan sent the Hollanders his very kind regards and begged them to accept a small gift of fresh fruit. The Sultan was glad to see the Hollanders. If they would only send a messenger on shore, the Sultan would receive him at once. Meanwhile, as a sign of good faith, the Chinese intermediary was willing to stay on board the ship of the Hollanders. Nobody in the fleet, least of all the officers and sailors who remembered what had happened two years before, had expected such a reception. They were soon told the reason of this change in attitude. After Houtman and his ships left in the summer of 1596, 
The Portuguese government had sent a strong fleet to punish the Sultan of Bantam for having been too friendly to the Hollanders. This fleet had suffered a defeat, but since that time, the people in Bantam had feared the arrival of another punitive expedition. The Hollanders, therefore, came as very welcome defenders of the rights of the young Sultan. It was decided that their services should be used for the defence of the harbour if the long-expected Portuguese fleet should make a new attack. It was in this role of the lesser of two evils that the Hollanders finally were to conquer their Indian empire from the Portuguese. Van Neck was the first Dutch captain to use the local political situation for his own benefit. He sent his representative on shore, who was received with great ceremony. He explained how this fleet had been sent to the Indies by the mighty Prince of Orange, and he promised that the Bantam government would be allowed to see all the official documents which the Admiral had brought if they would deign to visit the ships. This invitation was not well received. The Bantam people had been familiar with the ways of white men for almost a hundred years. They distrusted all cordial invitations to come on board foreign ships, and they asked that the Hollanders send their papers ashore. No, Van Neck told them through his envoy, a document given to me by the mighty Prince of Orange is too important to be allowed out of my immediate sight. In the end, the Sultan, curious to see whether these letters could perhaps tell him something of further ships which might be on their way, agreed to make his appearance upon the ship of the Admiral, where he was received with great courtesy. Then, after the fashion of the Indian ruler of his day, and of our own, he demanded to know what his profits were to be, in case he allowed the Hollanders to trade in his city. Van Neck began negotiations about the bribe which the different functionaries were to receive. For a consideration of 3,200 reals to the Sultan and the commander of the harbour, the Dutch ships were at last given permission to approach the shore and buy whatever they wanted. For ten days, long canoes filled with pepper and nutmeg surrounded the ships. The pepper was bought for three reals a bag. Everything was very pleasant. But one day, Abdul, the native who came from Bali, got on shore and visited the city. Here among his own people he cut quite a dash, and bragging about the wonders of the great Dutch Republic, he volunteered the information that on the Amsterdam market he had seen how a bag of pepper was sold for a hundred reals. That sum, therefore, was just 97 reals, more than the people in Bantam, received for their own raw product. Of course, they did not like the idea of getting so little, and at once they refused to sell to Van Neck at the old rate. It was a great disappointment. He tried to do business with some Chinamen, but they were worse than the Javanese. They offered their pepper to the Hollanders at a ridiculously low price, but after the bags had been weighed, they were found to be weighted with stones and sand and pieces of glass. There was no end to all the small annoyances which the Dutch Admiral was made to suffer. There were a number of Portuguese soldiers hanging about the town. 
They had been made prisoners during the last fatal expedition against Bantam, and they suffered a good many hardships. One day they were allowed to pay a visit to the Dutch ships, and the tales of their misery were so harrowing that the Admiral had given them some money to be used for the purpose of buying food and clothes. No sooner, however, were the prisoners back on dry land than they started the rumour that the Hollanders were dangerous pirates and ought not to be trusted. Van Neck vowed that he would hang his ungrateful visitors if ever they came to him again with their tales of woe. Meanwhile, in order to stop further talk, he promised to raise the price of pepper two reals. For five reals a bag, his ships were now filled with a cargo of the costly spice. In a peaceful way, the month of December went by. It was the last day of the year 1598, when quite unexpectedly, the lost ships that had been driven away from their admiral near the Cape of Good Hope appeared at Bantam. They had passed through many exciting adventures. After they lost sight of the commander-in-chief, they had first spent several days trying to discover his whereabouts. Then they had continued their way to get fresh water in Madagascar. They had reached the coast of the island safely, but just before they could land, a sudden storm had driven them eastward. On the 17th of September, they had again seen land and dropped their anchors to discover to what part of the world they had been blown by the wind. The map did not show that there was any land in this region. Therefore, on the 18th of September of the year 1598, they had visited the island which lay before them, and they found that they had reached paradise. All the sailors had been taken ashore, it being Sunday, and the ship's pastor had preached a wonderful sermon. So eloquent were his words that one of the Madagascar boys who was on the fleet had accepted Christian baptism then and there. After that, for a full month, officers and men had taken a holiday. Whatever they wished for, the island provided in abundance. There was fresh water. There were hundreds of tame pigeons. There were birds which resembled an ostrich, although they were smaller and tasted better when cooked. There were gigantic bats, and turtles so large that several men could take a ride on their back. Fish abounded in the rivers and the sea around the island, and it was thickly covered with all sorts of palm trees. Indeed, it looked so fertile that it was decided to use it as a granary for future expeditions. Grain had been planted, and also beans and peas for the use of ships which might come during the next years. Then the island had been officially annexed for the benefit of the Republic. It had been called Mauritius, after Prince Maurice of Nassau, the stadtholder of Holland. Finally, after a rooster and seven chickens had been given the freedom of this domain, to assure future travellers of fresh eggs, the four ships had hoisted their sails and had come to Bantam to join their admiral. Van Neck now commanded several ships which were loaded, but the others must await the arrival of a new supply of pepper, which was being brought to Bantam from the Moluccas by some enterprising Chinamen. This would take time, and Van Neck was still in a great hurry. 
he refused to consider the tempting offers of the Sultan of Bantam, who still wanted his help against his Portuguese enemies. Instead, he entered into negotiations with a Hindu merchant, who offered to bring the other ships directly to the Moluccas, where they would be in the heart of the spice-growing islands. The Hindu was engaged and navigated the ships safely to their destination. Here, through their good behaviour, the Hollanders made such an excellent impression upon the native ruler that they were allowed to establish two settlements on shore and leave a small garrison until they should return to buy more mace and nutmeg at incredibly reasonable terms. As for Van Neck, Having saluted his faithful companions with a salvo of his big guns, which started a panic in the good town of Bantam, where the people still remembered the departure of Houtman, he sailed for the coast of Africa. He had every reason to be contented with his success. In a final audience with the governor of the city of Bantam, he had promised this dignitary that the Hollanders would return the next year because that was the will of their mighty ruler. The governor from his side, who upon this occasion had to deal with a much better class of men than Houtman and his crew of mutinous sailors, had decided that the Hollanders were preferable to the Portuguese, and he assured Van Neck of a cordial reception. The return voyage was not as prosperous as the outward trip had been. Dysentery attacked the fleet, and many of the best officers and men had to be sewn into their hammocks to be dropped into the ocean, where they found an honourable burial. St Helena, with its fresh water and its many wild animals, was reached just when the number of healthy men had fallen to thirty. A week of rest and decent food was enough to cure all the men, and then they sailed for home. But so great was the hurry of this rich squadron to reach the markets of Amsterdam that Van Neck's ship was almost destroyed when it hoisted too many sails and when the wind broke two of the masts. It wasn't easy to repair this damage in the open sea. After several days, some sort of jury rig was equipped. The big ship, with its short, stubby mast, then looked so queer that several Dutch vessels which saw it appear upon the horizon off the Gulf of Biscay beat a hasty retreat. They feared that they had to do with a new sort of pirate, sailing the seas in the most recent piratical invention. On the 19th of July, after an absence of only one year and two months, the first part of Van Neck's fleet returned safely to Holland, the cargo was unloaded and was sold on the Amsterdam Exchange. After the full cost of the expedition had been paid, each of the shareholders received a profit of just 100%. Van Neck, who had established the first Dutch settlement in the Indies, was given a public reception by his good city and was marched in state to the town hall. End of chapter 5